church covenant. Acts 2 and 1, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, breaking of bread and in prayers. Fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done by the apostles, and all that believed were together and had all things common. Sold their possessions and goods, imparted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. I think uh, this is the most comprehensive portion of Scripture we could go to that covers most of the things in the church covenant. Very obviously, that's why we have chosen it. It shows us what gathered together means in obedience to our Lord, both in church capacity and when we are not assembled. We are in the third paragraph, and that third paragraph we remind you is our individual responsibility as members of the church when we are not gathered together as a church. We have also defined the things mentioned in this third or middle paragraph as our individual responsibility or called many times uh, by those who labor in the ministry, practical Christian living. So let's read that third paragraph and get down to where we left off last week. We also engage to maintain family and secret devotion to religiously educate our children to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, to walk circumspectly in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, and exemplary in our deportment, to avoid all tattling, backbiting, excessive anger, to abstain from the sale and use of intoxicating drinks as a beverage, and to be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior. We began last week, in the middle of that, with exemplary in our deportment. And stated unto you that the, the things listed thereafter pretty much describe what it means to be exemplary in our deportment. And we got through tattling, backbiting, excessive anger, and got into the sale and use of intoxicating drinks as a beverage. So that's where we're going to pick up today. Uh, deportment again. We would just briefly remind you that is a word that's not in the Bible, but it is in the Bible as far as being te taught, and it comes under the word of conversation. It refers to your manner of life, the conduct of life, the way you live life as a believer, as a Christian, and as a member of the Lord's true New Testament church. So it's what we say, what we do, what we act, what we think, how we present ourselves, etc., etc., is our testimony in the world. And we got into abstaining from the sale and use of intoxicating drinks of a beverage. And I'll briefly just go over the basic points that we pointed out last week and get back down to where we were. But again, the use of wine, as it's commonly described in the Bible, as far as drinking it, is not condemned. It is not the use, but the abuse. And you know, alcohol is not the only thing we're talking about when we say that. We're talking about everything. Everything God has given us in this creation is good in some way, shape, or form. 
The problem is, since the fall, man abuses all of God's gifts and goodness, whatever they are. And certainly none of us are naive to the fact that alcohol or an intoxicating beverage, how greatly those things are abused. But the bottom line is, it's not the use that is condemned, but the abuse. But that's not the end of it either. We talked about intoxication, and we would remind you of that, that it does not matter what kind of intoxication, anything that intoxicates alters the mind. Sober is the opposite of intoxication, and it means to be of a sound mind. New Testament believers are referred to as being their bodies, being the temple of the living God, the Holy Spirit residing therein. We are to glorify God in our spirit, soul, and body, the Bible says, Paul said to the Corinthians. So in the Bible, drunkenness is the equivalent of intoxication. Intoxication refers to anything that makes you of an unsound mind. Okay? So it's not just wine in that regard. And then we pointed out to you in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 20, where it speaks of the work of the flesh in contrast to the fruits of the Spirit, that one of the works of the flesh mentioned there is witchcraft. And that the word witchcraft there is our word in English coming from the Greek word pharmakeia, which we get pharmacy from. And we know what a pharmacy is. It is a place where you can get drugs, good or bad, okay? But it is medicine. It is an administration of drugs. And, of course, these are chemicals that have been mixed, made, put together. They can be good as well as bad. All of us who've been around very long, I'm sure, have had reactions and negative consequences of many of these things. In fact, we live in a day when by the time you listen to all the side effects, I don't know why anybody won't take any of it anyway. It's, it's unbelievable. And, of course, they used to not do that. Now they have to for liability purposes. But, uh, you know, in the days of penicillin, it was pretty cut and dried and simple, wasn't it? There wasn't a whole lot to it like we do today. But that's where the word comes from. And this comes from the source of where, uh, you know, we're living in the days of quote-unquote drug crisis and the drugs just keep uh, evolving, do they not, into more and more things. We've seen that in our generation. But just remember, this word and the translation of witchcraft, which in other places is translated sorceries, goes right back to that very pagan and demonic type thing of mixing up potions and things like that. It's associated with idolatry. Uh, these things that these sorcerers and witchcrafts and things mixed up gave people visions, hallucinations, and all kinds of other things. It didn't make it matter if it was drink, eaten, uh, smoked, ingested, however it got into the human body, it could cause these forms of intoxication. So again, that's the origin of it, and that's where our modern-day drugs really come from in historical times 
people were doing then on a more primitive basis, exactly what they're doing today, mixing up highly potent, even poisonous mind and body altering things that intoxicate. Okay? So don't just think of alcohol, beverage, or drinking when it comes to this word. So anything that intoxicates or contaminates the Christian's body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit, obviously is sin. And again, those words for sorcery are translated Revelation 9, 21, 18, 23, and Revelation 21 and 8. So when we read here about abstaining from... There are two things to be considered. Number one, we mentioned this last week, is that in the use thereof is the danger of abuse. Noah was not condemned for drinking wine, but because he became drunk with wine, you see. So that's the point. So there is always that danger of sin by intoxication if you participate in it. And then the another sin that often is so overlooked when it comes to drinking alcohol or being intoxicated with some foreign substance is the sin of your testimony before the unbelieving. And it seems like a lot of times this just gets neglected. I have talked to people who were professed Christians and, and as soon as you say, well, it's not the use but the abuse, they just see a green light. And they don't think about anything else when it comes to, well, the Bible says it's not a sin, so I can do it, you know. And again, I'm always saddened when Christians on any subject have an attitude of how far can I go and what can I get away with before it becomes bad or sin. That's the wrong attitude. That's terribly the wrong attitude. And I, I grew up with some of this, as I'm sure you all did. You know, in school, we had dress codes and different things. And, uh, you know, the same things applied and crept over likewise into churches. Well, how long is long hair? How short is short hair? Uh, how high above the knee can the dress be before, you know, uh, dancing or this or that. And most of the attitudes that I've seen in growing up was always, okay, how far can I go and how much can I get away, you know, and that. It's not what is the will of the Lord. What should I do and what should I abstain from in that regard? So this is what brings us to this sin also of our testimony of doing it. And I want to give you some scripture on that if I may. Let's begin in Acts chapter 15 and verse 29. Acts chapter 15 and actually we have two verses here. Uh, you might remember the book of Acts chapter 15 is where the council was held at Jerusalem. Uh, concerning the apostles and others who were evangelizing outside of Jerusalem. And remember, the Gentiles were being grafted in. So the barrier between Jews and Gentiles was coming down, and this was a transition that had never happened before, and nothing like it had happened before. So they were having to deal with this, okay, about the Gentiles, God saving Gentiles, as well as Jews, and them composing the Lord's church. 
So, some things came down from this, and in verse 20 it is said that we write unto them, this would be the Gentiles like to whom Paul and Barnabas and others had been going to and evangelizing, and Peter, Cornelius, write unto them that they abstain from pollution of idols, from fornication, from things strangled, and from blood. And then down in verse 29 that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, from blood and from thrangles, and from fornication, from which if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well, fare ye well. And I read that because what we're talking about by the sin of losing a testimony or using alcohol before the unbelieving is very similar to what we read in these two verses about meats offered to idols. In verse 20 it's called pollutions of idols, which is the same thing in verse 29, meats offered to idols. Okay, now just think about this for a moment. What are we talking about here? We're talking about Gentiles who made animal sacrifices in their idolatrous practices to their non-existent gods. Okay? So this is what they had been doing. And when they became Christians, that stuff had to cease. What are they going to do when they're around their friends and neighbors who have not been saved and they're still serving up this stuff that's been offered to idols? Well, that's what this is all about. And Paul made it clear that there was nothing that God had made that could not be received or eaten without thanksgiving. It don't matter. If God put it here, you're welcome to eat it. You know, I mean, we're no longer under the rites and ceremonies of the Old Testament. You can eat pork and everything else. Uh, Paul made that very clear. However, some of those things would be offensive to somebody that did not understand that. And let me tell you right now, we don't indoctrinate the unbelieving by telling them, well, it's okay to drink alcohol. No, they don't understand the use and abuse of biblical teaching. And all they're going to understand about what you believe about it is what they see you do. So, again, you can't expect, well, the Bible says it's okay, so I don't care if they understand that it's right, wrong, or whatever. No, we have to take that into consideration. And the example is exactly what is being referred to here when it says abstain from things which are offered to idols. What, what did they mean by that? Well, let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And look into that a little bit. In fact, before I go to 10, I want to go to 6. 1 Corinthians 6 and 12, we'll read a verse there and then jump to 10 and it'll be about the same verse, the same thing. Paul says in 6 and 10 of 1 Corinthians, All things are lawful to me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Now let's look at 10.23. 10.23 says... All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. What is he saying there? Well, if we were talking to Paul about our subject here of alcohol, he could say to us, yes, it's perfectly okay for me to drink wine as long as I don't drink it in excess. It's lawful. It's not sinful. To be lawful would be not sinful. That's what he would be referring to. But when he says it's not expedient, he's saying, but I would need to be careful who I did that in front of. 
Because if a Christian brother doesn't understand what the Bible teaches about that, and they see me, Paul the Apostle, and a missionary of the Gentiles drinking wine every night, they might get the wrong impression. And some would say, well, I don't care if they get the wrong impression. Well, you should care because your testimony as a Christian is vitally important. This is what he's talking about. So it would be lawfully before God, okay, not a sin, but in the interest of others in your testimony, it's not the expedient thing to do. You're not helping, you may be hindering. And then he goes into this. Let me keep reading. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. And you notice wealth is italics in your Bible. It's not there in the original. This would simply end with, Let no man seek his own, but every man's another. Consider another before you consider yourself. So the person that said, well, the Bible says it's okay, and I don't care what they think about it or what they do about it, is violating this teaching right here. You're not considering another. You're just considering yourself. And a Christian should not ever have an attitude, well, I don't care what somebody else thinks. You ought to be concerned about what they think because God cares. And we care about what we present our testimony to be before God. We are to be Christ-like. And we are not to seek to offend either a brother or the unbelieving or to set a stumbling stone before them. So that would eliminate a lot of the problems right there. He says, Whatsoever is showed in the shambles that eat, asking no question for conscience sakes. And shambles there would be what we would call the butcher shop. Okay? Now keep in mind what we're talking about here is in the butcher shop they sold animals that people bought to sacrifice or to eat to their feast, to their gods, etc., etc. Okay? And I mean, they could be two lambs hanging there, and somebody could buy one and take it home and eat it as a Christian. Somebody could buy the one that was its twin brother right there and take it and use it in a celebration to some idolatrous, sinful feast, you see. So, when he says, when you go to the butcher shop, don't, don't distinguish or ask questions about, well, is this and going, was this and killed for, an, you know, I mean... Just buy it and eat it for conscience sake. The earth is the Lord, the fullness thereof. If any of them that believe not, verse 27, bid you to a feast and ye do be disposed to go, whatever is set before you, eat asking no question for conscience sake. So again, you don't ask when it's put on the table, well, was this animal used or killed in an idolatrous sacrifice to start with and then this is what's left and we're eating it because, you know, that's the way they did it. Just like the Old Testament, remember? Animals were sacrificed in different kinds of offerings, and then the priest was allowed to take portions of that and eat for themselves. So it was the same way in idolatry. Now, so don't, don't ask and don't go into it. If nobody says anything, just be a good guest and eat it. But if any man say unto you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it or told you that, for conscience' sake, for the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? So he's saying here, be in consideration that now that he has told you where this came from and what it was used for, that you set before him the example and the testimony and say, well, I'm not participating in that because that has been used in an ungodly, sacrilegious way, and I'm going to abstain from it.
Bottom line is you're making a better testimony by taking that course of action when you know than you would be not saying anything and just going on even though you know. Because then by participating, you're condoning. They're thinking, letting them say, well, it's all right. It don't matter if you sacrificed it or we sacrificed or what. No, you make the distinction when you have the knowledge. For if I by grace be a partaker, a believer, why am I evil spoken of for that which I give thanks? Question. Wherefore, wherefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all the glory of God. Give none offense, neither to the Jews nor Gentiles, even to the church of God. He's and I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. So this is all about sin by testimony before the unbelieving. If you know that that idol or that meat has been used in that way. And it's the same thing here we're talking about, about alcohol in that regard. The offense or the offense of the testimony before those who do not understand this. We could give other scripture. I'm only going to give a couple or three and make a few comments here that to add to this. And one is, again, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, abstain from all appearance of evil. It covers a lot of ground. A lot of ground, doesn't it? Would you say alcohol is an evil in America? Does it have evil consequences? Is it evil? I mean, we all know the answer to that, right? I mean, is the use and drinking of alcohol something that is quote-unquote Christian or of the world? I mean, you know, just make the distinction in your own mind. We see all the problems it causes and the things like this and its abuse and stuff. And again, it's an evil thing. It's used for evil purposes. Uh, again, I've often wondered how many people would drink it if it was not intoxicating. You hear that sometimes. Well, I just like the taste of it. Well, how many things have we got out there today? We've got more choices than ever as far as taste goes. You know, I've had people tell me that that tried to get me to drink uh, beer or whatever. I, m- I remember when people first, uh, as a teenager, told me that. And my friends were drinking beer and they said, well, just try it. You'll learn to like it. I never did like the taste of it. I experimented with it, and I shouldn't have, and I was told not to, and I found out the hard way what it would do. And I thought to myself, and I thank God for it, and if this helps somebody, then praise be to God. Don't pat me on the back. But I thought, why do I have to learn to like the taste of something? I mean, that just doesn't make sense when there are plenty of things that I do like the taste of. So unless you want to get intoxicated, you know, and I've got to put this out there. It's not funny. But again, you see it in so many of the old shows that like the old westerns. And they go in and they get them a big shot of whiskey and then they make the awfulest face and everything and it takes their breath away and they cough and hack like, like it's going to kill them. And that's supposed to be enjoyable, huh? You know, so again, these things have repercussions and some of us have been down that road further than the others. Some of you have, I know. But again... It's associated with evil. And that's not the testimony a Christian wants to have. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through 17, also says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what have fellowship with righteousness with unrighteous, what communion hath light with darkness, what concord hath Christ with Belial, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And we realize that this is primarily speaking about in a marriage, but it also would carry over into a business or anything contractually or partnership in that regard. 
that again, different motives, different people, different ideas, one serving God, one serving themselves. So an unequal yoking of any kind is not good and is forbidden. Then he says, What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. And as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, said the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you and will be a father unto you. And ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. The same distinction about when you knew the meat had been offered to idols. Okay? So the bottom line is, in the covenant that we have read here, where is the safe ground? The safe ground is in abstinence. The danger is in indulgence. We're not told that Noah drank with the intention of getting drunk, but he ended up drunk. We're not told that Lot, when given wine by his daughters, drank with the intention of getting drunk but he got drunk and then incestuously had a relationship with the two daughters which they were so again uh, this the scripture we're kind of pointing at or the thought is here the abstinence being the best policy uh, may be summed up in proverbs proverbs 6 27 and 28 can a man take fire in his bosom and not be burned Or can a man walk upon hot coals, you know, and not be burned? And so, again, abstinence is the best policy. And we should never have the attitude of, can I? But the Christian's attitude should always be, should I? Asking the question, what the Lord's will would be. All right, the next thing, the last thing there, exemplary in our deportment or conduct is, to be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior. And uh, quite a bit said in that little statement. Let's break it down a little bit and remind you what we're talking about here. The subject is obviously the kingdom, so what are we talking about? If we don't know what the kingdom is, we don't know how to advance it. If we don't know how to advance it, we can't be zealous in it. So what is the kingdom? We've heard read of our Bibles of kingdoms. And the bottom line is, minimal, if you're going to have a kingdom, you've got to have a king of some kind, don't you? And uh, a kingdom automatically speaks to the effect that there is a king, whether they be a woman or a man, they would be called a queen, but kingship. Somebody in power. Somebody with authority. It is a royal power. It is a majestic power. It is not common power. It is superseding power and authority, isn't it? Kingship. And in a kingdom with a king and kingship, there is dominion of some sort, isn't it? I mean, there is a rule of some sort. If a chicken farmer has ten chickens, he's king over ten chickens. Another chicken farmer maybe may have one of the big chicken houses in Arkansas and have thousands of chickens. Well, he's king over that house. But nevertheless, each one has authority or position over whatever is under them, right? So, dominion, rule, and a sovereign rule is all implied when we think of the word kingdom. Well, the kingdom we're talking about here is the kingdom of our Savior. If you are a believer today, you are part of the kingdom. When God saved you, when you were called into the kingdom, you were converted into the kingdom, you became a citizen of the kingdom. 
in that regard. So if there's a king, there has to be somebody or something to have dominion over or else the king is powerless, right? I mean, somebody has to be empire. Somebody has to be subjects or citizens thereof for a kingdom to even be a kingdom in that respect. So when God saved us, he brought us into his kingdom and there we serve and are subject to his kingship according to his laws, his commandments, his decrees, right? The Bible in the Gospels is full of scriptures. I don't know how many, I didn't bother so many, where we read about the kingdom of heaven. Okay? That tells us about our Savior's kingdom. That tells us about the kingdom we have been brought into. The very fact that it is of heaven is vitally important. God is in heaven. Our Savior came from heaven to establish his kingdom upon this earth. And so it is all of divine origin. Therefore, it is spiritual in that respect. Look with me to Luke chapter 17. Luke 17 and 20. Christ was asked a question when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. And and they were speaking here of the only kind of kingdom they knew of, which was kingdoms of this earth that manifested themselves in a literal king, a literal dominion over literal subjects, people that they could see. All right? Neither say they, neither shall they say lo here or lo there. And this is in reference to an observation. Don't go looking for it around here on the earth. You're not going to find it. What does he say? Behold, the kingdom of God is within you. How can the kingdom be in you? I thought you're in the kingdom. You are. But it can only be both ways if it's spiritual. And that's exactly what the New Testament teaching. You know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus talked about entering into the kingdom of heaven and so forth. And in fact, that's exactly what we do. In Matthew 18 and chapter chapter 18, verse 3, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven, enter into this spiritual kingdom. In contrast to that, Another scripture comes to mind in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul later on says, verse 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither, and I'll add here so for understanding, neither shall fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covenants, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now notice the next verse. Such were some of you. And you know how I emphasize the past tense of that verse. I've done it here for years and years and years and we'll keep on doing it. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. What's those verses telling us? 
It tells us when you're engaged habitually in those sins, you are outside of the kingdom of God. And when God saves you by His grace and translates you into His kingdom, out of the devil's kingdom, you quit those things. That's past. You were engaged in that. You're not that anymore. And I must make this comment because it is so grievous to me. All of this junk that so-called churches and Christianities take uh, churches in Christianity take up today about sodomite marriage or ordaining homosexuals to the ministry or even having those type of people as church members. Let me say to you, if you can read verse 11, you have all the answers to that. You were those things. You were a practicing whatever. All those things are there. But when God saves you, that's past tense, and now it's future, and you're a new creation in Christ. And I point that out because I despise this doctrine that says you can keep on being what you are, and enter into the kingdom of God as you are. No, you can't. It's not what you change to get into the kingdom. It's what God does to you inside that makes you want to be in this kingdom and out of that kingdom and to quit doing that. And anybody that claims to be a Christian and there's no change or still has the same appetite for all this stuff here, they've never been born again. That's the bottom line, folks. That's the bottom line. And it's so sad but that's where you end up when you deny or neglect the plain and clear teaching of Scripture. And every time I hear of some denomination having some counsel on a local level or national level to decide some issue, I think of this verse right here. Think, just read the Bible. If you want to know, nothing could be plainer. Draw the line right on top of the line the Scripture draws. It's settled matter. So sad. So, the kingdom of our Savior consists of believers here on the earth at any given time of which we are now a part of. And then we would say to you very clearly, the kingdom of our Savior. That's, that's a good thing to be reminded of. It's not our kingdom. Just because we're in it doesn't make it... We don't have shares in it as far as ownership. It is His kingdom. And why is that? Because He's our King, right? I mean, Christ is King. He is King by right, and we could also say He is King by His redemptive sacrifice. He purchased, He bought, blood-bought every one of us who are his subjects in his kingdom. I think Peter said this so very clearly. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling election sure, for if you do these things, ye shall never flail. And of course, calling an election is a, a part of our conversion, sure signs. And he says, verse 11, For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. Now it is a spiritual kingdom, but the Bible tells us in the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, it will be a literal, visible kingdom on this earth. Luke 1 and 32 said concerning the prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ that the Lord God of heaven will give unto Christ the throne of his father David. And of course, him being king throughout the Bible, we read about him with the title of Lord of Lords and King of Kings. So it's definitely his king. All right, our text says here, or our reference is to be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom. Advance. Okay, there's the responsibility and duty. How do we who are a part of the kingdom advance the kingdom? And again, we've said it is a spiritual kingdom. Okay? Well, we cannot advance Christ in his person or his work, can we? I mean, we cannot make the person of Christ greater than he already is. We must declare him as he is. We cannot do anything to give Christ more power than he already has. He has all power, does he not, when he commissioned the church. We cannot do anything within the kingdom to make him more royal or more majestic than he already is, right? We cannot, as kingdoms of this earth, give him wealth or riches to make him more than he is. Uh, He's already all of those things. He already has all of that. He already has universal rule and dominion. So we cannot do anything to make him more than he is. And this is kind of different than, again, we talked about Solomon's kingdom, right? I mean, Solomon had it all, pretty much, but yet people were giving him more because of who he was and had it all, right? We can't do that to our Lord. What can we give the Lord that he doesn't already have, that he doesn't already own, that he doesn't already rule over? So we don't advance our king, the kingdom of our Lord by trying to make our king more of a king. <laughs> He's the biggest, greatest king there is. You see what I'm saying? But the advancement of any kingdom, even if we're talking about an earthly kingdom, is pretty much defined by what? I mean, we can talk about the kingdom of Assyrians, and we have and studied them, and we've talked about the Babylonians and the Grecians and the Medo-Persians, the Roman, and all, you know, all kinds of kingdoms, right? How were they recognized usually? By usually two things primarily. That would be the extent or size of the territory or and or the number of people that were in that kingdom, right? And of course the Roman Empire was the greatest because it covered more territory and more people than any other kingdom, right? So advancing the kingdom when you study history and that you see those kingdoms advanced or grew or in increased in either territory and or people in that regard well so we're talking about the sphere of influence when we're talking about advancing a kingdom now the lord's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom so it's not about land it's not about property or anything like that is it but in fact, the Bible says what? The earth is his. We read it a while ago, didn't we? The earth is his and the fullness of thereof. So we don't go out to conquer territory for our Lord in that like earthly kingdoms did and grew. 
But since ours is a spiritual kingdom, it must be advanced or increased spiritually. How has it done that? Well, by making strong what is already there and in increasing it or building up by more subjects or servants, and that is done essentially in a nutshell by the church in obedience to the commission. That's it. If somebody asks you, how is the kingdom of Christ advanced on this earth? Tell them Matthew 28, 18 through 20. The church is to go ye into all the world, preach the gospel, baptizing them that name, believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded. And in the teaching of all things, the present kingdom is made stronger, all right, rooted and grounded in truth as it is taught as evangelically others, by God's grace, are brought into the kingdom. So, the church itself, by carrying out the commission, obediently, according to the examples and teaching of the New Testament, is how we advance the kingdom. A lot of people think they can advance the kingdom outside the church. No, no. The church is the vehicle for advancing the kingdom. Christ put it here for that very reason, to advance his kingdom. If a believer wants to advance the kingdom, they better be in the Lord's church. That's where it's done. That's where it's going to happen. That's where the Lord's going to work. So, what did Christ say? I will build my church. He advanced his kingdom. When you read the book of Acts, you are reading about the advancement of the kingdom of God by the Lord through his New Testament churches. What happened in the books of Acts? Just what he said would happen before he ascended back to the right hand of the Father. He said, you will be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, the city, Judea, the territory, and then expanding to the uttermost parts of the world. And what do we read about in Acts? Paul, Barnabas, Silas, uh, Peter, others going, uh, Philip, you know, going different places, what have you. And when they went, preached the gospel, people believed, people were baptized, churches were there, the kingdom was advancing. So it advances through evangelism, the commission, New Testament churches showing up here and there. When a new church is established in Thailand or New Guinea or Australia or some other part of the world, the kingdom of God has just advanced a step in that regard. So, us as a church carrying out the commission, again, uh, we're doing it as a church. And when we are not assembled, we are either speaking that gospel or living that gospel. An example before others advancing the kingdom. The final thing here, quickly, is to be zealous in our efforts. One scripture comes to mind to me when I looked at this and sums this up. And that is Titus 2.14. It says, Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. And the key thing is the last part, of course, right? What he has done for us, 
Him working in us unto the obedience of good works. And zealous here is what we might say our attitude about doing it. What is our attitude of obedience? We are to be zealous of good works. What is good works? Being obedient. Okay? It should be a fervent desire. And, and again, the word zeal or zealous, we're talking about literally a burning within. It should be a burning desire of every Christian to be obedient to our Lord and Savior. Number one, primary on the list, your purpose in life. A burning desire to please Him above all things. To have a zeal for it. Not to be laxetical or apathetic in that, but to be zealous. Eager, enthusiastic. You know, the Lord, when He was here, spoke in parables about how the husbandman left servants here and went away and one day he's coming back. We all know we're all human. We know what it's like to work a job and work it when the boss is present and what it's like when the boss is not there, don't we? And character is defined by what you do when nobody's watching. And so, but we're all humans. We all know how that works. You've ever worked in a group of people no matter how diligent you are, you can be affected by them even if you try to do just as good when the boss is not there as you are there. You know. But the Lord indicated, I'm going away. I've left you here as stewards. One day I'm coming back and you don't know when. So you better be zealous and you better be ready. Right? I mean, we, that's, that's a common, clear teaching, isn't it? Well, the longer the Lord delays His coming, and the longer the boss is away, the easier it is for the workman to get negligent, isn't it? We are tempted to do that. It is, I confess, whether you do or not, it is hard to maintain zeal in our work for the Lord because of where we're doing it and what we're surrounded by. It's always been difficult for God's people. We are no exception. We've already discussed some things in Sunday school, and, you know, it tends to dampen our zeal when we think about all that's going to take place today and tonight, and it's not going to be to the glory of the Lord, is it? I mean, that's grievous. And that tends to throw water on our eagerness and our enthusiasm and so forth. And that's why the Scripture says in two places in the New Testament... Do not become weary in well-doing because we're prone to do that very thing. And while the Lord also said that because iniquity shall abound, the love of many will wax cold. That's dampering your zeal. We're prone to it. We need to admit it. And we need help to keep it from happening. And I'm going to tell you, I struggle. I struggle to be zealous. It is so easy when ungodliness is everywhere you turn, you can't go anywhere, anything without hearing filthy communication in public, in the grocery store, anywhere. It, it's just pathetic. It is not edifying. It is not God-ordering. And it dampens our zeal. 
And the only way we can remain zealous is to really have a laser focus on what we're doing and why we're doing it. We can't save the world. We're not called to save the world. We're called to be a witness. We're called to be a testimony in whatever sphere of influence that we have. And we are to be accountable, good stewards, serving for the Master, regardless of what's going on around us. It literally is like putting your hand to the plow and just look straight ahead. Literally it is. Literally it is. And pray for God by the power of the Holy Spirit to keep that fire burning within us. Because only He can. Reminds me again of that of Christian and Pilgrim's Progress. I love that example. When he was at the interpreter's house. He was shown that room. That fire burning in the corner. And a man come in there and kept throwing buckets of water on that fire. And he couldn't knock that fire down. And Christian was just bedazzled at well, I know what a fire is, and I know what water is, and why is this man putting water on the fire and it's not going out? And the secret was he took him around behind the wall, and there was a man behind the wall putting oil on the fire from behind. That, that has stuck with me since the first time I read it. That's where we are. We are to be that fire. We are to be that light. But God's got to give us oil, or else this world will dampen our spirits, dampen our efforts. And I confess to you again, I'm... I'm ashamed to say that I fight this battle constantly. I need, that's why I'm, my name is on our prayer request. Pray for the pastor. I need your prayers. So don't look. Bottom line, I guess, be a good philosophy on this, how to maintain our zeal. I have to tell myself this. It does work. Don't look around. Look up. <laughs> Lord's going to come. One day He's coming, and when He does, we're going to be Accountable servants unto Him. I hope we cannot be ashamed, but be found faithful when He comes. May God give us that grace, and my prayer is God give you that grace too. Don't be weary. Remember who you serve. Remember why you're serving Him. And remember one day He's coming for you. God bless this to your hearing.